guys, this is Grady Summers. I'm FireEye CTO here with the FireEye Ion Security Podcast. Today, I'm excited to be talking to John Miller uh, from our EyeSight Threat Intelligence team. John is a lead for threat intelligence for our financial crime analysis team. So, John, thanks a lot for being on the podcast. Sure. Thank you. It's great to join. So, John, can you first talk about what does a threat intelligence manager on our financial crime analysis team do? Certainly. I get to look at a lot of interesting and varied issues involving cyber threat activity that's conducted for the purpose of, of stealing money, of stealing goods, of, of stealing services, really anything with the intent to gain a financial benefit from the activity that's being carried out. So that looks in today's threat landscape, for example, like ransomware, point-of-sale malware, mm-hmm. extortion, credential theft malware, and Again, a variety of other threats where the focus is financial gain. Hmm. And whenever I, I talk to you or, or uh, folks with similar roles on the ISIC team, I'm always a little bit jealous. It sounds like cool work. Uh, can you just talk a little bit for our listeners, like the background? How did you get into a role like this? Sure. Essentially, I spent a few years on the analyst level learning about these issues and getting an understanding of how we can best inform customers about them and, and, help, under, and help customers understand how to deal with these issues. Worked as an analyst on the financial crime team directly for quite a while, as well as a few other areas that we focused on in the past, such as distributed denial of service threats. Hmm. And you've been at iSight for quite a while, right? Yes, been at the company iSight before uh, FireEye, and now obviously the combined organization since 2010. Hmm. Okay, good. So you talked about working with customers in the role. Um, I mean, when you talk with a customer, what are some of the factors that play into the likelihood that they're going to face a cyber attack? That's a great question, and I think first off, a good way to think about that issue is what is not the determining factor. Hmm. Often when we are interacting with organizations about what threats are and aren't relevant to their organization, the way that they tend to think about that is through a couple specific lenses, particularly the sector that they are in and the region that they are in. Organizations tend to think about what threats are relevant to them based on what is known to be affecting my sector and what is known to be affecting organizations in my region. And what we see when we look at the factors that shape threat activity from the adversary's perspective is, in fact, sector and region are often not what a threat actor uses to determine who they are compromising or who they are attacking. There are a few other things that come into play that that vary based on the motivation of the actor conducting the activity. And um, some of the factors that come into play, uh, for example, in the financial crime area that I work on most frequently, are, first of all, the footprint of an organization, what the topology of the organization looks like from an attacker's perspective, mm-hmm. the types of software that it uses, types of systems that it uses, how, how often it patches vulnerabilities, okay. and other factors like that. And that would actually be what we see influencing, uh-huh. for example, ransomware distribution today. So walk me through an example. You're, uh, you're a bad guy, I don't know, where are you, Eastern Europe, Russia? There's a lot of them there, so right, sure. Right. We'll yeah. say you're a bad guy in the U.S. We'll go with that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you're picking a target for, for ransomware. Um, t- I mean, take us to an example. Sure. Usually the way that ransomware distribution comes to be scoped is, in fact, 
there will be multiple attackers distributing any given ransomware variant, and they'll simply be trying to infect whoever they can who is exposed to the delivery mechanisms that ransomware is spread through. So the way that we see ransomware distribution working in the e-crime underground side of things, so the way people get access to ransomware, typically the way that works now is developers will create a ransomware variant. Mm -hmm. They'll provide it at a low cost or free to other criminals who want to distribute it. And then due to how the malware and the associated infrastructure is configured, once a victim is infected and they pay a ransom, that profit is split between the developer and the distributor. So no upfront cost, but rev share on the back end. Right, exactly. And what that model essentially results in is the attackers are incentivized to infect anyone and everyone that they can. Now, there are a couple tendencies in ransomware activity that have been interesting over the last year because these often cause organizations to particularly say, oh, it looks like ransomware distributors are really going after, say, the healthcare sector. Right. uh, Because there have been, you know, reported cases where there have been a lot of infections within particular organizations. And what we actually often see driving those cases is the capabilities that are used alongside ransomware are very conducive to repropagating and self-propagating the malware. Mm-hmm. For example, ransomware is often associated with email credential theft capabilities. So once attackers have infected a system within a network, they will be able to further distribute malware to other victims within that same organization. Hmm. There are a few cases where we have seen, you know, a little bit more deliberate ransomware distribution within particular organizations, but the vast majority of the time that's actually not what's happening. Huh. Those cases where you hear about, you know, this or that organization falling victim to yeah. thousands of machines being infected, it's because of actually the automated capabilities that are built into the ransomware campaign. Huh. They just they just fuel the machine. Huh. That's interesting. Why the division of labor? I'm curious. Um, certainly somebody who has a wherewithal to develop ransomware package would have the wherewithal to you know, spam it out uh, via email. Why, why do you see that division of labor taking place? That is absolutely true that often the developers would also have the capability to distribute the malware. And really, it just comes down to the same drivers that are conducive to division of labor in, in an, yeah. a legitimate economy. Yeah. You know, If you can focus on developing the ransomware, then you have more time to perfect that aspect of the operation and make your money there. And then somebody else can focus on perfecting the distribution activity and making their money there. Yeah. Uh, the invisible hand. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what, what is when we actually go to the distribution, um, how, how are, it sounds like they're not really choosing targets. It's somewhat indiscriminate. Are they getting right. hold of email lists from uh, some sort of commercial provider? I mean, how are they actually then getting the burn somewhere to their targets? That would be one way that, that actors would distribute payloads. There are, you know, services within the crime underground that yeah. allow you to buy email lists or, or any yeah. other mechanism. Um, and a, another takeaway that I think would be significant in relation to that is that ransomware activity, basically, let's identify whatever means we can to distribute this payload to the largest number of victims. And the, the resulting tendency that, you know, your exposure is influenced by your footprint. Basically, do you use email? Do you use Windows machines that are susceptible to ransomware infection? That is a good example of one factor that we see shaping cybercrimes targets. A couple others that we see are the services that an organization provides, you know, what you offer to your customers and how a threat actor might profit from abusing what you offer would be deterministic in many cases of what cybercrime threats you encounter. Additionally, the resources 
that an organization uses internally that may or may not be within their direct control to secure, we often see shaping cybercrime activity as well. So, for example, anybody who has payroll yeah. is of interest to a criminal yeah. who wants to perform yeah. payroll fraud. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So I'm guessing our recommendations uh, to help prevent uh, financial crime are, are probably not that different from our, our general recommendations that we might make you know, uh, when a Mandiant team does an assessment or when, when you meet with customers. But let me drill into it for a second. I mean, when you do talk to customers about prevention, what are some of the things you recommend? In this area, particularly in in our look at the factors that, that drive cyber threat activity, I think a lot of the prevention is in simply understanding those factors and simply having that mindset when an analyst or another individual within a potentially targeted organization is evaluating threats that they see and, and trying to determine is this or is this not relevant mm-hmm. to my organization. Going into that with the correct mindset is going to make people a lot better prepared then to leverage all the capabilities that can come after it. Leveraging threat intelligence, leveraging what you see from device telemetry on your network, mm-hmm. leveraging the results of an incident response that determines threat actor activity within your environment. All those things are going to be better able to inform an organization's risk-taking steps if they're going into it with the right mindset as to you know, what factors might determine how you are exposed to threat activity and what threats are relevant to your organization. Right, okay. Uh, we were talking about you know, ransomware. I guess that one in particular is challenging because um, you know the, the premise of, hey, let's detect quick and then you know, quickly respond and kick them out of the network doesn't really work with ransomware, though, right? You kind of get one shot to, to prevent it, and once it's taken root, it's too late. Yeah, it ideally is a situation where you would be preventing the attackers from, from getting in or at least from doing damage rather than having to clean up after the fact. Yeah. Uh, we kind of went down the path of ransomware, which is, is certainly a hot topic. What are some of the other like broad areas of financial crime that you guys cover, though, and are interesting to, to your customers now? Well, one area that we just were able to inform customers on that I think is particularly interesting is some intrusion activity that looks like it was intended to manipulate gift card services huh. on the back end. Definitely very unique. Over the last year, we have also seen quite a bit of cybercrime activity that is intended to exploit point-of-sale systems. Yeah. seems like there's a bit of a run on the bank, so to speak, hmm. with the United States moving to EMV. Criminals seem to be very interested uh, in exploiting point-of-sale systems for as long as they can in the current technology environment. Yeah. Interesting. Great. Well, John, it's great to talk to you. Thanks very much for your time today, and uh, thanks for everything you're doing to help keep our customers safe. Thank you. Thank you.